Hello and welcome to the Letter Science Sport Podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dan Clever and John Goodwin. So Dan is a Professor of Strength and Conditioning at St. Mary's University, while John is Director of Performance Services at the Saudi Arabia Olympic Training Centre. Having also had a career himself as a track and field athlete, together they've recently written the book Biomechanics of Sprinting Force 2. So who better today to discuss how you can use force to improve your running speed? So without further ado, it's time to welcome both onto the show. So John and Dan, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, Matt, thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Hi. Uh, thank you for joining us. So uh, can we start with Dan? Uh, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Hi, yeah. Um, so my name's uh, Dan Clever. I'm an academic at St. Mary's University. Uh, so uh, I teach uh, students who want to be strength and conditioning coaches. Um, prior to that, uh, surprisingly, I was a strength and conditioning coach. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's me. I think that's it. You've got a great name to work in academia. Like, yeah, that's just it just works so perfectly for me. I, I appreciate every aspect of that. That's brilliant. Um, John, John, what about you, mate? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm currently Director of Performance Services for Saudi Olympic Training Centre, so I'm sweating it a bit here because I've turned the AC off for audio <laughs> reasons and it's getting pretty warm in my apartment at the moment. But uh, yeah, prior to that, I was working with Dan at St Mary's University on the MSc and uh, Bachelor's in Strength Conditioning and then uh, I guess going back, my origins as a track athlete. So it was, it was track and field that got me into coaching and then S&C and then everything that I've been doing since. Absolutely fantastic. So obviously you guys have uh, recently brought out a book on, uh, on yeah, sprinting, biomechanics and force. So uh, yeah, you guys, as far as I'm concerned, they're the perfect people to discuss the topic. Um, what, can you give us a quick insight as to what the book is and, and yeah, why people should be looking at that? Yeah, I, I guess... Um... I, I, I wrote a book about the biomechanics of training uh, two or three years ago, which uh, I've been blown away with the reception of. Um, and so kind of that, that that's, you know, where, where we start. And then I was having to give a lecture this or last year on uh, sprinting. Um, and, in, and I don't really know a huge amount about that. So I was watching some of John's lectures uh, and uh they're really good um so <laughs> you would say that though then, you're on a podcast with them now <laughs> you're, you're stuck with it uh, you know I, I i don't mind telling him he's rubbish shit if 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 it warrants it but uh so i uh you know asked him if he thought that those you know th that his ideas were written down anywhere and and they weren't and asked him if he was interested in um yeah writing a book together uh so this new book is kind of follows the format of my previous book uh, in trying to kind of, you know, explain why the biomechanics are relevant for performance. Um, but the content, you know, the the intellectual um, merit is all John's. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that's very kind of you, I'm sure. Um, so when we when we get into uh, like training for speed. Before we get into how we're going to do it and biomechanics and all those lovely things, why do athletes want to be fast? So Dan, can you take us through like the importance of speed for athletes? Yeah, so I I wasn't really sure how to answer this question um, without being uh, facetious. 
Um, I'd be facetious, that's fine. <laughs> okay. I, it's pretty much the story of my life. Uh, like, how do I answer that question without being facetious? But, um, like, you know, we, you know, when, when we compete, whatever the, the sport is, you know, we, you know, we, we compete on in various tasks. Um, so for instance, you know, and that, that's, you know, sport throws up those tasks. So it's not just about technique, uh, although technique is often something that we'll compete upon. Um, but we, you know, there's also physical capacities that we compete upon. So, like if you're playing rugby, we compete on strength. If you're trying to wrestle the ball away from each other, like speed tends to be uh, the, tends to be within games, lots of opportunities to compete on speed, like wh whether it's competing to get to a ball first to accelerate past an opponent. Um, yeah, so so it, it tends to be a quality whereby yeah you you can win a tactical advantage uh, if if you're faster than than the other person. Excellent, excellent. So when we look at then being able to achieve that, so achieving that tactical advantage through being faster, uh, John, what are the, the key physiological requirements of, of doing that? So uh, specific mm -hmm. to running, obviously, there's a whole technical, technical and, and mental aspect, but specific to running, what do you need physiologically to be able to run fast? Mm -hmm. Well, it, in the end, everything comes down to our ability to express force on the ground, and we'll get to force a little bit later. But if that's my target, like the... The, the physiology that underpins that is all of the physiology that goes into me being able to generate force expression. And some of that, as we'll touch on, relates to technique and where I'm able to position my limbs. But a lot of it relates to what I'm able to do with the, the active tissues and some of the passive tissues in my body that facilitate me being able to express force. And it's all the muscular things that people would understand. And in some cases, for some athletes, it's chasing hypertrophy and, and maximal strength. For some athletes, it's chasing changes in qualities in tendons and connective tissues. Um, but yeah, in, in the end, the, the, the key output is when I hit the ground on one leg, with everything else swinging around at the same time, what am I able to put through that leg into the ground? And that's, that's strength. And it's the physiology of strength that, go, that, that goes with that. And the, I guess the bit where people drift away or take strength in the wrong, in the in the wrong terms, and they say how strong is strong enough? There is no strong enough. There's always strength that matters here, in the sense that we're talking about the ability to execute force outcomes in a specified, underspecified task constraints. So that means what when I say strength, I'm talking about when you come off your front position and you go down and hit the ground with that foot, what are you able to do with your musculoskeletal system to express force into ground? That's the strength I'm talking about. And some of that can come in the gym. Some of it doesn't come in the gym, but it's that strength that's really meaningful to me. And it's the physiology of that. And that's fairly straightforward around sort of the neuromuscular system and passing through things through passive tissues to get to the ground. Absolutely fantastic. Dan, do you have anything to add to that? Or is that, uh, as far as you're concerned, uh, absolutely the, the best uh, possible thing that we could have heard? You can, you can mark him, give him a grade out of 10. Uh, you're, no, you're a lecturer, uh, right? So, uh, so you just, just be harsh. No, I, I, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, the, 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 the physiology of sprinting is the physiology of being able to exert force. Um, like, there's capabilities that we need to have to be able to do that. And, and one thing that 
you know, one, so, so, and yes, like, you know, the force expression environment is different to, you know, the force expression environment when you're powerlifting, for instance. Um, but yeah, there, there's some interesting capacities that one needs to have to be able to express force in a functional way when you're sprinting. One, one of which, which I like to hear John talk about quite a lot is rhythm, um, because force expression in sprinting is about switching things on and off quickly. And, and the, you know, the way that we can do that in an effective way is, is having a really good ability to be rhythmical in the way that we move. Um, but all of these things, yeah, con contribute to just being really, really good at expressing force in a, in an effective way. So I'm, I'm interested to hear about that rhythm, John. Um, but before we get onto rhythm, can you talk us through the technique? Because I think technique probably has to um, come before rhythm in a, in a logical way of, of building yeah. up, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so can you, can you talk us through what, what good technique might look like and how that might differ per person? Well, I guess I would say to tweak what you said, like rhythm is a fundamental element of technique. And if you don't have a rhythmic flow to the pattern of the shapes you're making, the shapes you're making will just be shapes. They won't deliver the force outcome you want to achieve. Um, and it will be much harder to make those shapes and to hit those positions and to strike in the way you want to if you don't, if you don't have that, yeah, that, that, that rhythm and timing available to you. But the, like the, the principle rolled around technique is what, what is your movement strategy to facilitate force production? And I guess there's three bits of the cycle that that becomes really relevant. So if we went to the back end of the cycle, when you're about to toe off, if I'm doing things inappropriately there, like trying to push off for a really long extended period of time, what does that do to me? That leaves my leg flying in the wrong direction for a long period of time. It means my hip extensors and knee extensors are activated for too long in the cycle. And all those things start to diminish the rhythm, the flow, the timing to what you're trying to do. Because if you do too much back there, what you're not going to be able to do is then through the middle of the recovery cycle, fold a leg. Folding a leg enables you to move a leg fast. Moving a leg fast enables you to get to a front side position that's really effective. And getting to a front side position that's really effective with good muscular qualities to manage it is what enables you to then generate the strike and the downforce that you're trying to achieve. And when we look at the force traces of elite sprinters and what they can do with the start of that force trace on the ground, which is this really big, very early, hard hit on the ground, that only comes from that whole cycle being set up from the backside working right, folding and enable a limb to fold easily and move fast through, accelerate forward quickly, and then strike down aggressively from a front side position. So like that, that technique and timing then all go together because it just facilitates setting up hitting the ground hard so how, how would you then define rhythm within that context so te technique being the shapes which you mentioned mm. uh, how does how does rhythm then look in that context yeah so so like rhythm and timing sort of flow and mold together um but when people are uh jerky and over muscling what they're trying to do, what you end up with are lots of co-contracted states, groups of muscles on, stabilizing or pushing through joints. At times you actually want them to start switching off. 
because you're trying to get more, trying to force more out of the system in places it isn't supposed to come. And that happens a lot. It's not uncommon at all in field sport athletes to see them trying to get too much whilst they're on the back half of their stance. They're trying to get too much out of the floor there. Um, and sorry, and then another one that's really common in field sports is, for example, they don't switch off quads when they need to switch off quads. So I really need, when my hip flexors switch on and I want to start accelerating my thigh forwards, I really need my quads to switch off at that point. And then what that leads to is a really nice, easy, very relaxed, comfortable fold of a knee. And the knee will shorten the leg, make the lever arm of the whole around the hip shorter, and enable you to accelerate the thigh forward really fast. But if you if you're holding on, if you're if you're tight in places you shouldn't be, and the quads particularly are holding on for too long, what you end up with is the knee is resistant to that folding. You end up trying to swing a long leg through. That takes a whole load more hip work. It doesn't allow you to get to the front side position. And then you're trying to hit the ground from a short front side position. And now you can't express force the way you wanted to. Um, like other places, that sort of timing will be really important. For example, is the management of the hamstrings. Like we want to have a really nice fluid pattern so that hamstrings are switching on and off at the right time and really good rhythmic controls of those muscles manages performance and arguably has some influence on the risk that comes from sprinting as well. Absolutely excellent. So when, when you mentioned those uh, team sport athletes, obviously that's going to be different for, for team sports and potentially other sports. Um, Dan, I'm interested to get your thoughts on um, what athletes should be looking at in terms of their, their force expression. So I know John's going to have a little chat about the, the team sport stuff in a second. Can you talk us through then the importance of force production and technique um, <clears throat> and what athletes and coaches should be looking for in that sense? Or not looking for, I guess. <laughs> yeah, or, or potentially yeah, absence of things could be good as well. Yeah, I, I mean, for, you know, for, for fundamentally, you're, you know, your, your training is about learning to be able to express force in the most effective way possible um and you know that that's kind of i guess again another another reason why like rhythm is so important in in speed because like there's a lot going on when we sprint like you know the, the there's you know there's lots and you know, it's a much more complex movement than, say, you know, an Olympic lift where, okay, well, pretty much, like, we just switch everything on really hard and pull hard. I mean, I'm being <laughs> here, but, like, everything's moving in the same direction, largely, you know, like, that's that's not what happens when, when you're sprinting. Um, and it it's one of these things where, okay, well, how how can we control everything that's going on like you, you you can't control everything that's going on if you're cognitively trying to to do this or that like the, this is where you know rhythm provides us with a really really fundamentally excellent way to kind of coordinate things you know w without it having to be you know mindful and under control I'm not sure I answered the question there. But, uh... <laughs> uh, you gave me some great information, so that's a good start. I'm, I'm interested to hear, um, the, like, we haven't discussed power, right? So you guys uh, said just beforehand, like, power, yeah, maybe that's not the best way to, to describe things. And you, you're talking about force the whole time. Um, and I think people associate 
maximum strength with with force right but you're doing that in a in a really constrained time frame because you're hitting the ground quickly you want that quick ground contact time why is then power a, a bad um a bad term to be using in sprinting yeah, like so i mean this is one of my bugbears um but but it is the kind of we have this mechanical language that that you know that also has meaning in everyday life um and unfortunately the meaning in everyday life doesn't necessarily match the mechanics so kind of if you know it would be very very common for us to watch someone sprint and say wow they're really powerful like uh, and and as a linguistic expression that has meaning but that's not that that description of powerful isn't necessarily consistent with the mechanical argument so power is the rate of doing work and uh, and that for your listeners that might again that that might sound like jargon and, and I, the reason i throw it out there as jargon is to exactly show that okay well maybe when you say power in a mechanical context you're not really you know that that's not exactly what you mean like you know so what we describe as when we see a sprinter moving as someone being powerful isn't really them being powerful it, it, it's necessarily it's them producing a huge amount of force in a short period of time um like that's going to be correlated with power but power isn't the best variable to describe that um and the, the problem is that because we don't have this you know critical understanding of, of this and because now we have lots of devices that can give us power that we end up using a variable um that we think we know what it means but actually it probably doesn't and it, you know if we know a little bit more about the mechanics we can probably you know find a better variable to use and, and what do you think is a better variable then force like foot force and, <laughs> and foot and and you know the 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 express how force is expression is is being applied over time so like force by time is impulse um you know so so like so the, the variable you know it, you know that is either force or impulse um but you know that that's essentially looking at force and and considering how force is being applied versus time if you get into power um, well, we're in rate of work done and work is force by distance. Okay. So it's still a measure of force, but then you're talking about the distance that that force is applied over, um, which isn't as intuitively easy to understand. And for the purposes of, of explosive events probably isn't the most useful thing to look at. I think that's a, a really good and interesting point that the the words that we use need to be reflective of the the things that we want to train as well right so right producing power on i don't know let's say a watt bike um maybe that makes a lot of sense for a cycling athlete but yeah then all of a sudden impulse and uh, force expression on one leg for a sprinter is a is a better way of discussing things so Absolutely. uh john obviously i said same question to you when, when it comes to then team sports what should athletes be be looking for mm -hmm. and what what should coaches be looking to train and what should athletes be uh, looking for in their training to make sure that they're able to improve the sprint speed. Yeah, yeah. Well, like from a from a physical away from the field, I guess perspective, you're chasing all the same qualities you'd be chasing with a sprinter or with anyone else. 
So apart from the wider demands of the sport, if we're focused on, on the, the, the linear speed element, you want them to have really good capacities to accelerate a thigh forward fast. So there's qualities around the hip flexors, there's qualities around the hip extensors, glutes and hamstrings to be able to catch that and transmit it down to acceleration into the floor. There's qualities around the knee extensors that enable you to manage the stiffness of that system when it hits the ground. And then there's really high demand on functional capacity around the foot and the ankle, because that's, that's where the rubber hits the road, if you like. And really, that they need that structure to be able to transmit everything that's coming from up above. So those, those things don't differ. Probably the, the, I guess, arguably acceptable shift in, the, in terms of the sprint model is that field sports athletes will potentially sit a bit, little bit lower in their stance than track athletes will because they generally spend more of their time either coming in and out of acceleration, deceleration patterns or being ready to move into acceleration or deceleration patterns quicker. Um, but what that doesn't permit for me is sort of the excuse that it's still not valuable to have the ability to move to another level of sprint ability. It doesn't mean you're always going to move that way, but I would still always want athletes to have the capability to move something like closer to a track athlete so that A, when the opportunity arises, they're able to deliver so that they can practice running fast effectively, even though they might come back to a slightly modified model a lot of the time when they're in and out, in and out of their sports skill. Um, probably one of the biggest challenges football players have technically is that they spend a lot of their youth development uh, in, in game practices with a ball at their feet, striking balls on a regular basis, moving in and out of various sizes of small-sided game. And what you end up is people that are very good at stabby short step movements, very good over a few steps in a quick acceleration, um, but they have no idea how to fold a limb and cycle a limb fast because all they've done are these explosive short range actions. So it isn't that what they learn from those football practices are wrong. It's that they just have a hole. They haven't done this other thing as well. And they end up losing a skill. And if you watch boys through academies, you see boys at 10, 11, 12, 13 that still know how to run. And then you see boys at 14, 15, 16 that progressively lose that ability to run. And there's a whole load of maturational things that you're managing on that journey as well. But some of it is they're just gradually being drilled into moving like a footballer, but it's not moving like a footballer. It's moving like a footballer that's just practicing in tight, small areas with a ball at their feet all the time. And they're just, they're just missing one skill that's gonna be relevant, hopefully, to their game performance in the future. And it doesn't take much to retain that uh, in a training program and facilitate some of those technical capabilities being present. They're not always going to be used, but they need to be present for the athlete. And what, what do you think then the athlete should be doing when it comes mm. to, to maintaining that? So if, you, if you're looking at potentially a week or a month of a, a 14, 15 year old before they potentially get them to that mm. maturation phase where they start to lose that ability, yeah. what should they be doing to maintain that through to, to adulthood? Yeah, like the, the simplest thing is they just need to sprint regularly. Because <laughs> yeah. a lot of what SNCs are doing in the gym for their football broadly are delivering some of the qualities you want anyhow. So they're not miles off in any of that that they're doing. But the, the challenge is we just have diminishing and diminishing amounts of open free running. And, and, and there's two, two bits of running there that, that I want them doing. One is opportunities to hit 
max velocities on a regular basis. And no, I, for me, most of the time that means coming out of football because we try and manipulate football practices to create it. And actually what you end up with is really carved up football that isn't really football anymore. And that you're kid, sometimes you're kidding yourself that there's a ball involved. Um, and maybe a ball involved sometimes gets buy-in from players. Maybe a ball involved sometimes gets buy-in from coaches. So I understand why those things emerge. Um, but we do need to make sure we get up to and around maximum velocities to enable them to practice that skill. And then opportunities just to practice tempo-based running. So it might not be max velocity. It could be at 70, 80, you know, 70 to 90% range. Opportunities to practice some volume of running in that, in that range. So they get the feel for being free, for allowing a limb to fold in a little bit higher volumes, which you, you can't get the volumes if you just do max velocity sprinting only. I think other than that, like it's not a lot. You're probably talking about 15 minutes of practice time across a, a full training week that might be have some, some focus on this type of work to deliver enough to hold that for them through their teams. And that, that's not a lot, really, when you consider the amount of time that is potentially wasted in a warm-up, that you could just accelerate through that warm-up, get to your sprint work, sprint, and then crack on with your training yeah. session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, excellent. So I'm, I'm also interested to see how, how you apply this as well, right? So can you talk us through a case study as to how you've gone about improving mm. uh, sprinting performance previously? Yeah, like, if I, if I go back to when I was in football, um, like, we, we would typically see between the 16 and 18, so through the, the sort of scholar age groups, um, probably something approximating getting on for around a 10% improvement in speed, which is a combination of what work you're doing with them and then their maturational processes that are ongoing. And then, uh, and then hopefully something close to another 5% as they move beyond 18 into, into the sort of pro age groups or pro age group. And then that, that most of that comes from a standard cohort program, like building the general set of qualities up the chain in the gym. Um, and gym includes plyos and anything else that might, might go with that type of program and then sprinting regularly. And then if you get opportunities to do any individualized work with players, you might get a little bit of time. You might get athletes who are injured and you've got time in rehab and you get pockets of time where you can do a bit more focused work with them. But generally it's just running fast regularly. Um, but then the, the, the case studies that then become interesting are the, the boys who are outliers or the girls that are outliers if you're working on the other, you know, in the women's game. Um, which is a really great place to be at the moment in the women's game. Yeah. So much really rapid escalation potential and real opportunity to create performance change in that game at the moment. Um, but um, you, but so that when you have outliers, when you have something in their chain that is particularly not performing well and other things pick up the slack, then you, you have opportunities to go actually there's a transformational change for this person here so my my favorite case study was a player who was really good through the hip he was swinging big heavy legs he was a fairly big guy um he had a something around a 250 kilo um deadlift so he could move weight off of his hip or hip and knee um he but his jump was a bit average so directly off the knee and when the knee's moving fast, he didn't perform as well. And by the time you got to his foot, he had nothing. Like he was bottom of the group, 
pogo stiffness, strength measures at the foot and ankle, didn't have anything. And, and on the grass, he was running about 34 k's an hour as, a, as an adult. He's like 20, 21. Regular training program, always been sprinting, always been strength training. Um, so I'd call him a trained athlete, running 34, around 34 k's an hour. And all we did was give him the opportunity to practice some frontside shapes. So because he, he, he then ran off his hip, entirely off his hip, uh, he had a big long contact length on the ground. He struck the ground far in front. He dragged the floor underneath him. He looked like he was rolling along the floor rather than bouncing and running along the floor. Um, so give him an opportunity to explore some front side shapes with some tempo-based work, wicket-based work, drill-based work. Just feel what it's like to be in a front side position where you're going to strike from. But he couldn't do that yet in running because he couldn't hit the floor because he didn't have a foot. And then give him a foot. So he, after, after about 12 weeks of giving him a foot, plyo-based work, strength-based work, at the foot, ankle, calf, after about 12 weeks, we had this very sudden, very quick shift that he, in the, in the space of 10 days, two sprint sessions, his whole model of running, not moved by us, his whole model of running shifted and he started hitting the floor from the front side position. And again, he went in the space of 10 days, went from a regular 34 runner to hitting 36 Ks an hour. And that, like that sort of transformational shift can happen just when you give people the tool that they're missing and then enable them to explore the shapes that that will require them to use to capitalize on it. Um, but, th but those outliers are rare. So those are the times you're able, able to make the big fixes. I've probably only had, I don't know, four or five of those in 20 years of, of <laughs> like the real outliers like that are rare. Most of the players you're working with, it's a cohort based strategy, get the right physical qualities and sprint regularly. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So John and Dan, massive thanks for your time and effort today. I think it's been an excellent podcast. Um, where can people find a little bit more about you guys and uh, where can they find the book? That's good. Go on, um, go on, Dan. No, thank, thank you. Uh, I mean, the book's on Amazon. Uh, so if if you if you search uh, the biomechanics of sprinting, um, you'll, you'll find it. Um, I have a website which is dancleather dot com. Uh, John, where can people find more about you? I don't know. Or are you hidden? My Twitter is Johnny Mechanic, Johnny underscore Mechanic. But um, I'm not a super active social media person. But I'm happy to chat to people on Twitter. Perfect. Guys, thank you very much for your time and effort today. It's been a pleasure and look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks, Matt. And that's it once again. A massive thanks to John and Dan for all of their hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Science of Sport Coach Academy. Now, the Coach Academy is an overgrowing library of sports science courses which are broken down into bite-sized chunks. That means you can fit them in and around your busy coaching schedule. On top of that, every course you complete, you'll also receive a certificate of completion, which means you can prove your ongoing education. So if you're interested in getting into the Coach Academy, you can do so for free in the next seven days using the link in the show notes in just a few seconds time. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be fantastic if you could recommend us to a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend. That means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll see you next week.